Tyler, what do you think about this whole ethnic studies curriculum? Is it something you want to teach? I don't think so. Why not? I think it, it comes loaded with a lot of assumptions that many people would disagree on. Um, I think I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal that it basically blames capitalism for creating these structures of oppression. So I don't think I necessarily agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I, I read through the 22-page uh, glossary uh, for, for the their curriculum piece. I haven't actually read the whole thing. I kind of like to, but I was struck by the fact that in order to understand this curriculum, what you apparently need is a working vocabulary of every progressive term that has come <laughs> out in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Uh, I was particularly bothered by their attempt to rebrand history by replacing the first vowel with an X – as if there's actually some sort of inherent patriarchal oppression in the accident of the word history having H-I-S at the beginning. It's absolutely <laughs> absurd. I agree. But that, of course, is not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? An ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy, Rollsville, North Carolina. Today I'm joined by Tyler Bonin, who's an economics instructor and uh, our, our local expert on f foreign policy issues. And today we're going to be discussing uh, Tyler's insights on the uh, NSDA public forum resolution, which reads, The EU should join the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so today we're going to find out all about that. Tyler, welcome back to What's the Res? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think you were last on with, uh, we were prepping for the Coolidge Resolution, if I remember correctly. That's uh, right, unilateral free trade. That's it. Uh, okay, so the Belt and Road Initiative, I'll, I'm just going to be Socratic here and confess that this truly is something I don't know anything about. What on earth is the Belt and Road Initiative? So the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is a large-scale infrastructure uh, plan that was set out by President Xi Jinping uh, in 2013 that seeks to sort of establish, it's a play on the uh, Silk Road um, and the, the trade corridors that it created uh, through Central Asia. So it's a play on that for the modern world, but um, in essence what it does is really open up uh, China to many more markets, to be able to gain many more resources, um, and really it's a projection of their power, um, economically speaking. Um, it's going to allow, allow China to take a, a further role and gain a further reach geopolitically. So what, what exactly is it, what, what are the specifics about it? I mean, you said infrastructure, so are we talking airports, seaports, are we talking bullet trains, are we talking roads, are we talking all of the above? What, what is China trying to accomplish? Um, so you're right, Josh, it is all of the above. Um, it also in, involves uh, maritime trade as well. So you have seaports, you have railways, um, you do have roads um, in some areas, I believe in Central Asia. Um, in Pakistan, uh, they're working on um, internet as well. So broadband, they're, they're laying fiber optics cable as well. They're really trying to propel um, these countries that have traditionally been underdeveloped into a, uh, a further developed stance in order to allow them to trade themselves and allow them uh, to experience economic growth as well. Well, that sounds great, though I'm, I'm inherently a little bit suspicious. I mean, there, there, after all, is no such thing as a free lunch. Is is China just coming in and giving these things away for free? Can I apply to Beijing? I'd like an airport in my particular country. Could you give me an airport, please? Is that how this works? Or So basically, uh, I wanted to use this term that I just recently read, which is referring to all this as debt diplomacy. So uh, for um, on the African uh, continent, for instance, you have countries that borrow money from the China Development Bank, 
in order to engage in these infrastructure projects. So uh, an African nation, for instance, will borrow money from China Development Bank in Yuan that will be paid then to a Chinese construction firm, which will come and, and build, you know, whether it's a seaport, railway, road, what have you. Um, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it seems as though um, the collateral used are such things as um, mineral rights, uh, port rights. So a lot of people are pointing this as sort of like a, a neo-colonialism, but with China at the helm. Walk, walk us through what, what's, what all is involved there with the neo-colonialism. I mean, I know colonialism in terms of its historical movement where European powers were establishing colonies for the purpose of bringing the goods of those colonies back to the mother country. A lot of what England and France and Spain did uh, to their benefit and, eventually, and in many cases to the harm of the colonies. Is that, is that what you're saying about China or is there something different going on there? No, I mean, I think that the, the, underlying, uh, the underpinning theme is, is consistent. So uh, with China, for instance, if they go into a country in Africa, and, and traditionally these are countries that have been saddled with the debt in, in the past um, for development projects, um, they've had experienced low economic growth. Um, President Bill Clinton and President um, George W. Bush have both forgiven loans to these countries for infrastructure projects. They just simply haven't experienced growth to pay those things back. So in this instance, they're seeking economic growth. They want jobs, and they think that having these infrastructure updates uh, will lead to the economic growth that will create jobs for their citizens. Unfortunately, it will put some countries in a path where they'll be simply unable to pay back their debt to China. And if that's the case, then if you have mineral uh, rights being used as collateral, that gives China um, uh, the ability to just go in and, and extract as many natural resources as it needs to to further propel its economy. Now, this this may this may not relate, but it sounds like that could there could be an ecological element to this question then as well. That. I mean, China, as far as I'm aware, is one of the worst polluting countries on the planet. They don't have much of an environmental conscience. So if China is doing this, they're, they're not considering how do we extract the bauxite from this section of northern Africa without harming the local e ecosphere. Instead, they're just going in and taking it out as quick as possible, correct? Right, absolutely. Um, and at the same so China's been moving steadily to going from an, a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy, much like the United States is. That's what they want to do. But at the same time, that manufacturing is still going to propel their growth. So if they open up markets in Africa, both for extracting resources, um, that also means that they now have a market for their cheaply manufactured goods. So if access to African markets is opened up by building uh, ports, which ease congestion, railways, roadways in order for the goods to move about the continent, now you've also still propelled the Chinese manufacturing sector for these, um, you know, for developing these, these uh, cheap, cheap goods that can sort of flood the African markets. Uh, I know this has been a, an interest of yours for a long time. We, we talked about it yesterday, and uh, you surprised me. By, uh, I, I shouldn't really have been surprised, but you then immediately pulled up an article you wrote a couple years back. Uh, that article is uh, freely available. Anybody who wants to check it out, it's on realcleardefense.com, and uh, it's titled Assessment of Infrastructure Development in Africa and Shifting Chinese Foreign Policy. Uh, and that was published on May, or, I'm sorry, April 2nd, 2018. So what was it about this topic that kind of piqued your interest? And, and what just kind of walk us through some of the things you studied in order to write that article. Um, right. So, I mean, this goes back to, to my time uh, studying public policy. 
Um, and also back to my time in the military where my role in the military was developing uh, host nation telecom infrastructure projects. Um, so I had a real uh, interest in this and I started reading more and more, um, not just about the projects in Africa, but also in South Asia and other places. Um, but what struck me about this was just the, the role that China was now taking in the world. And so this is not going to be just about economic development. That's definitely an aspect of it. It's propelling China forward. Um, I think I just read that um, Italy now is the first G7 country to sign on to this. So that, that has major implications. But in terms of Africa, China's always been uh, beside this non-interventionist foreign policy. Um, we're not going to engage in the affairs of other countries, but now it has to. For it to protect its investments and its role in such places as Africa, it necessarily has to take a more active role in the security of that nation. So China has a naval base in Africa, and they've also signed on to help with counterterrorism efforts in China. So where traditionally that's been the role of the United States, you might see more of a global presence in terms of security uh, on part of the Chinese. That's fascinating. So this really could look like a new hegemonic power rising. Absolutely, without a doubt. Okay. Well, uh, the other half of our resolution is focusing on the European Union. So walk, walk us through, what, uh, in your view, what, what's going on with the EU and the Belt and Road Initiative? I mean, why does the EU care about this massive Chinese project? So do you mind if I read a couple of statistics off for Please you? Please do. That'd be really helpful. So I gained this from the China Power Project, which is a project done at the um, Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And this is just a few numbers to sort of like uh, give some picture to the scope of what China is doing right now. So 4.4 billion is the combined population of all countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the BRI touches 62% of the world's population. The combined GDP of all countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative is $23 trillion. Trade between China and BRI countries between 2014 and 2016 was $3 trillion. And right now, China has pledged $1 trillion. So when I look at that and I start to notice that um, some peripheral European countries have signed on um, in Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, um, Greece and Portugal signed on, but the most significant aspect of the EU is um, the fact that Italy, the only G7 country, has just signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. And they're looking this, uh, at this as a way for them to also gain some economic momentum because they slowed down dramatically. They've had a, a sovereign debt issue for a long time, hmm. um, massive unemployment. They're looking as, at this as a way for them to gain access to markets that will help spur the Italian economy, their, their industries. Unfortunately, the other side of that is that that's also easier access to Italy's markets for Chinese goods, which might, in the long run, actually uh, harm their domestic industry. Well, this seems like it would bring in a lot of the things we talked about about uh, during our unilateral free trade uh, discussions about. I mean, what 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 does there there is some obvious harm to domestic industry when suddenly a huge influx of cheaper foreign goods enters the market, right? And there may be some long term gain as the economy shifts and industries adjust and adapt, but immediately that's probably harmful to the domestic industry, correct? Right. Absolutely, absolutely. And then um, another aspect to that, again, beyond just the purely economic, is that. Um, you know, there's a lot, been a lot more talk about how the, the Chinese model, right, they're an authoritarian country that they've, they've opened up to these free market principles that, help, that has um, helped them see 
very large economic growth. But this model, right, this hybrid model of being authoritarian, illiberal country... I would use the word communist there, but those are probably correct. I'm sure those, those right. that fits as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but also sustaining free market principles. That's the sort of hybrid model that uh, some economists are saying is being becoming more and more um, looked at by the developing world, especially these countries which op- uh, China's operating in right now, developing these infrastructure projects. So EU um, recently had just called, um, uh, I want to say that, I'm trying to look through my notes, the EU just made a formal statement um, that basically is looking at um, China's actions maybe in almost a nefarious light, um, and that it's kind of a risk to, to some Western principles. I, one of my students who was researching this today found the, uh, and uh, I, I don't remember the exact website she was looking at, but it was one of the places where the EU lists their founding principles and has links to their charter and their constitution, those sort of documents. And a lot of the, the statements are very typical European expressions of human rights, commitment to a uh, certain progressive vision of society, uh, equality of all people, and democratic rule, things which seem antithetical to... Chinese government. Right. These don't seem to like they would mix very well. Uh, so I wonder how much they can play together in terms of economics, and yet the, the competitive, competing ideologies are going to be struggling there at the same time. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's no getting around that fact that these are two competing ideologies and that um, China is, is, is growing in power. It's projecting its soft power into the world. Um, and, and this is, yeah, this is a threat to those values, especially as there's more and more connections made physically through infrastructure to China, but also to, um, um, to the fact that China is going to sort of be exporting this model. It's worked, let's be honest, it's worked very, very well for them. Um, it's just kind of incredible the fact that they have such a planned approach politically that combined with sort of this free market approach, but still isn't quite free market because of the communist government, but if that model starts to get exported more and more, that's going to mean trouble for for the West. Well, and there certainly, there are enough Western countries that, uh, especially, I mean, still parts of Western Europe are, uh, it's as if they have a continual flirtation with socialism to be looking at how many different parts of human life can be socially designed and maintained to remove, to mitigate risk, and yet at the diminishment of freedom within the society. As I could, I could imagine a if a um, if a certain French or certain certain wing of French politics kind of came to power, or or uh, or even British politics. If you had a labor, the Labour Party was back and and really won the won the election with a lot of power and put a new prime minister in and so on. Well, then I could see them really saying, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to basically apply the Chinese model here because it seems to be very effective. And yet that would be such a break from the tradition of Western politics. Absolutely, without a doubt, without a doubt. So it seems like a lot of this then, the the benefits are are economic in nature, Mm -hmm. increased access to markets, increased access to capital for developing nations, which the EU does have uh, some poorer members that I'm sure would be grateful for. You already mentioned Greece as one. I was like, uh, Greece was, I remember when uh, the the Greek economy collapsed and it's (laughs) like they were the the, the new poor man of Europe going around begging for for a handout. And uh, Germany, to uh, anthropomorphize the countries, Germany was really grumpy about having to give Greece a handout and so on. So I'm sure they'd be grateful to have a new influx of capital to build new things. 
but I want the price tag though on all of that seems really fascinating, and I wonder how much the Chinese government is not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. What what do you see as the ultimate goal of why why is China using all of their capital to create this Belt and Road Initiative? What's what's the end game? So I think um, and you, you, using uh, its capital is probably going to sort of propel the. Um, the position of the yuan in the global the global economy um, by linking itself to, to this much geographically um, yeah so you're gonna have countries that are traditionally underdeveloped that will be able to be propelled into development they want these infrastructure projects because they do mean down the road the growth that's going to create jobs that's going to help propel them into the future um, but again, you know, they, they have a lot of countries that are going to be beholden to them. Um, all these things really are going to develop China's economy far beyond what it is right now and at the same time allow it to um, even further its military uh, presence in the world too. So it's not just all uh, economics that we're talking about. I do think that, you know, China is really focused on being the world's global superpower. Um, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, again, we can go back to the free market um, economics of it all. You know, we, our consumers in America, gain from trade with China. Um, but at the end of the day, that's that's the position that China wants to see itself in. Which I find fascinating because I uh, that reminds me an awful lot of the uh, the Cold War narrative with uh, Russia's rise and and really the heart of the struggle between the, from the fifties to the very the, to nineteen eighty nine with the struggle between the free world represented by the United States and the uh, cold the the not the cold world but the the well, I guess really kind of the frozen world the world without choice of, of communism represented by the USSR. And really that, that that became a struggle not just of competing access to markets and competing goods, but rather a, a conflict of ideas and fundamental beliefs about the way human beings operate with each other. Right, right. Now, absolutely. And, and China's not – again, I think I remember saying something along these lines last time. It's not simply just about China wanting to dump cheaply manufactured goods into the rest of the world. Um, that – that is sort of how they hedge themselves, right? And it's been their plan for them to be able to move into the service-based economy, much as the United States is. Um, you know, of course, we have Google, Amazon, all these other things. Mm-hmm. But look at what China's been doing. You know, the the kids around here running around talking about TikTok. That's a Chinese. That's a. <laughs> um, that's the Chinese endeavor, you know, uh, Alibaba. I, I can't these... imagine what TikTok does with the data that they're gaining from <laughs> all of our students' phones. Absolutely. But I'm sure someone somewhere said, you know what we'll do? We'll create a thing that combines bad music with bad dance moves, <laughs> and we'll use that to subtly nudge the minds of America's youth in a certain direction. What use that is, I have no idea. Right. But it certainly lends itself to conspiracy theory. It does, it does, but... Um, a massive amount of money is being spent on research and development in China right now. And that, that's the aspect of it. Artificial intelligence development is, is definitely a priority in China. So moving into the service-based economy and building up their, their tech sector, of course, you know, Huawei, there was an issue with the Trump administration and the fact that um, you know, their, their 5G products were, were going to be prevented from coming to the United States because worried about spying on Americans and all this, sort of this corporate espionage as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that China is going to be pro- propelling its service-based uh, industries into the rest of the world. Um, 
first with manufactured goods and then the rest of it. And this infrastructure only helps to facilitate that end goal. So it sounds to me like you're, you're describing a, a, calling it a plan sounds very uh, formal, but certainly a, a long-term goal or a long-term strategy uh, I know I was looking at one document that suggested the uh, the goal of the Belt and Road Initiative is to be completed by 2049. Right, right. So this is not, whereas I, and I think this might be one difference between an American perspective and honestly, Europe probably had, there are parts of Europe that fit more in this kind of Chinese perspective, I suspect, right. than American. I just mean in terms of ha- taking a much longer view. We Americans, I suspect, tend to focus in terms of a two-year and a four-year and maybe an eight-year cycle. Right. Because that's the, those are the wheels, those are the patterns in which our government runs. Right. But when you're thinking about Europe, you're thinking about countries that have histories that go back hundreds, in some cases thousands of years. Now, China doesn't quite have that same historical continuity anymore since 1949 was a big break with right. the People's Republic of China starting. But there's something about... Chinese government that uh, I, I at least would probably say is correlated with uh, the te- some of the, the teachings of Confucius. I don't know if they're causal there, but they're certainly correlated. That takes a much longer view and is quite willing to absorb losses for a gain that's generations down the road. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that definitely 100%. And, and that's the trouble with this, too. I mean, going back to Italy, the, you know, the newest country to sign on to this in Europe... Um, you know, like I said previously, they're saddled with debt. Right. They have oh. suffering industry, but yeah, they might have access to Chinese markets, but in the long run, it's going to be bad for them once China starts moving its goods in. Well, I'm taking from all of this that there is a ton of ground to be dug into on both sides of the resolution, and that uh, affirmative is probably going to be focusing more on economic benefits, and negative is, or I'm sorry, it's public forum. Pro, not affirmative, pro. Pro is probably going to be focusing more on economic benefits. And the con side, also known as the negative, but it's public forum, so we've got to change the lingo. The con side is probably going to be focusing more on diplomatic, hegemonic, and global sovereignty threats to the current world order. Right. And really the... And which is really interesting because this is not about whether the United States should join this. It's, that's not even a question, which is probably true in the status quo. That's right. The U.S. under President Trump is obviously not going to be partnering with a Chinese initiative. But where will the EU go? And, of course, where Europe goes, America tends to be 10 to 20 years behind. Right. So if the EU does go, does follow China in this direction, does that mean America is not that far behind? It's, it's going to be a really fun debate. I think this, this, ends up being, this is going to be a better topic than I initially thought it was going to be. Absolutely. No, I, I agree on that entirely, and, and, and this is true. Once, if you were to sign on this, more, more countries are starting to enter into this agreement, right? They're going to be engaging with countries that are going to be thrust into the stage of development, but at the same time, there's going to be political development there that China is actively going to have its hands in. So with that economic development is going to come those political developments that are going to sort of like, again, mold it into a model much similar to what the Chinese are or what the Chinese want. Mm. And so that's going to put the EU in a very, very different position when it starts talking about things like human rights abuses and these like pillars of Western society that we that we think of as like free you know freedom of speech, freedom mm-hmm. of assembly, all these great things, freedom of the press. Yep. Right. Is 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 a thing that's you know going to be very interesting to see how they sort of align th- these values with the reality on the ground. 
Yeah, I was telling a couple students the other day that it seems like it should it shouldn't have a big uh, disconnect. I would think for Germany, which is of course a major economic player of the EU, to be willing to partner with a country that is currently employing concentration camps for religious groups. Right. right. Uh, you've got the official policy of Sinocization, where mm-hmm. the attempts to wipe out all non-Chinese religions, which seems to also pretty much wipe out most actual Chinese religions too, since the Communist Party is officially an atheist group. So they want to wipe out pretty much everybody, but their current methodology is to gather up both Muslims uh, and Christians and then a bunch of other groups as well in China and attempt to stamp out their religion through a concentration camp-style methodology. Uh, That seems like there should be a huge problem with Europe getting in bed economically with a country that is using that. So where and what what does that do to the European Union's official statements on human rights? Are those to be sacrificed for economic gain? That's I think that's a huge question. Without a doubt, without a doubt. So uh, I I think that's that probably wraps it up from from my perspective. Any any last thoughts on this resolution? No, I think this is going to be this is going to be a great one. Uh, I really appreciate this resolution because I think that this is a very important issue. Um, even for the students that are going to be learning about this in order to debate it, because this is the world that they're entering into. You so know, they're, true. They're going into college. Um, in this era of globalization, you know, sort of meant a lot of things to lots of people, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that we're, we're becoming more and more connected than we ever have been, and so it's really important for them to evaluate these things. I, there, there is a lot to learn on both sides of the resolution. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me on What's the Res today. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening in. My guest this uh, last half hour has been Tyler Bonin, economics instructor and uh, foreign policy expert, and uh, for this episode in particular, the author of RealClearDefense.com's article, Assessment of Infrastructure Development in Africa and Shifting Chinese Foreign Policy, uh, where uh, Tyler was, uh, he was ahead of the curve on looking at this issue uh, back in 2018 and has been so helpful to us today. Well, uh, do let us know what you think of this episode, and uh, you can do that by getting in touch with us over email at whatstheres at gmail.com, finding us on uh, Twitter, Reddit, or Instagram at whatstheres underscore, or at our Facebook page at whatstheres, or I'm sorry, at facebook.com slash whatstheres. And if you like what you're hearing, please do uh, follow us. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's still the best way to let other people know how to find us. Uh, and You should also know that there's a couple other ways you could engage with our material. Uh, Every Friday, Ethan and I do a live debate, and we always push the information out about that across our different social media channels. Friday morning, about 9.45, we'll push the link out, and uh, if you happen to be available and want to listen to a debate, uh, you could check it out. Uh, if you want to check out a recorded debate where both parties have prepared and brought a formal case to uh, to the debate, then you could also should check out our premium content at whatstheres.com slash premium. We do real debates for real people and with real people, where we've got educated non-experts debating about the important issues of the day. We release a new episode every month, and those are available available at the cost of $3 a month or $30 for the year. Thank you so much for joining us here at What's the Res, and uh, we'll look forward to providing you future resolution analysis episodes. And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.